Insofar as religion is gone, reason is going. For they are both of the same primary and authoritative kind. They are both methods of proof which cannot themselves be proved. And in the act of destroying the idea of the divine authority, we have largely destroyed the idea that human authority by which we do a long division sum. With a long and sustained tug, we have attempted to pull the mitre off pontifical man, and his head has come off with it. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. Today we are talking about Orthodoxy, Chapter 3, The Suicide of Thought. Grace, what are you drinking today? I have water because it is so freaking hot outside. (laughs) (laughs) It's hot here too. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Like in the 90s with like, you know, 90% humidity. And- Woo! Okay, we're not that hot. It's yeah, comfy it's here hot. compared to that. Yeah, this is soft. Well, in good for people. you. Stay hydrated. I'm actually, I have learned that you can go into labor too early if you don't drink enough. So um, I'm like pounding all the liquids the last few days. But um, today I'm drinking a cherry juice mocktail thing and then in a teacup. <laughs> and I am also drinking a chai tea latte that I didn't finish yesterday, an iced chai tea, and it is oh, also nice. delicious. Um, so we're just keeping the fluids going over here. Yeah, um, you're so close. I'm so close. Almost oh. here, <laughs> guys. Pray for me. I'm so close. I really want to have this baby now. I'm 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 done with being pregnant. I'm I'm at my <laughs> I'm at over the end it. of my rope now. Um, well. It's been quite a while. Yeah. It's been over a month. Sorry, everyone. We've missed y'all. <laughs> um, but it's been the most insane year of our life, and yeah. podcasting has not been priority. However, we're going to try to fit in a couple of recording episodes before I give birth to this baby. And I'm not like, working anymore. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I have a new job, which is far less stressful than my last job. So <laughs> Yes. So we don't have too many excuses now. So we're going to do our best to be a little more consistent. Yeah. But. Well, it is what it is. You know, this yeah. uh, this year has really just been comically ridiculous for both it's of us. kicked so us in the tushy. Um, okay. But neither of us have any <laughs> desire to stop doing this. So that's a good no. thing. I feel like we're super excited. Yeah. To it's continue. Like we want to. It's not a thing that we're just going to drop, you know, but yeah. um, it's just that the episodes may not be every week. So we yeah. do our best. So. Yeah. And honestly, you're welcome because there's too much <laughs> content out there anyway. And you probably all need less screen time slash audio time. So we're spreading it out for the good of your soul. Exactly. That's what this I'm is telling for myself. You, the yeah. adoring fans. <laughs> no, no, we're I, we're super psyched to keep talking about orthodoxy. And I know like I've I've received some emails and notes from people just like over the various things saying like, please continue. When is the next chapter coming out? Because this is a book that is like it's quite challenging. And mm-hmm. to be honest, when you do it alone, it just can be too much and a lot of people stop as we've talked about every episode so far so we want to do it with you and we're back we're here yeah i'm excited and i'm excited to talk about this chapter too because i i found it really challenging i had to read things and reread things and kind of go over it again and yeah check myself when my mind was wandering and go back and read sentences three times <laughs> yes <laughs> to make sure that oh. I really understood it preach so yeah. I I relate to anybody out there who really struggled through this chapter um yeah. kudos if you made it to the end and mm-hmm. hopefully this episode will help all of us including myself to yeah. understand it better so um besides well, that have you have you been ahead. reading anything yes so um I have been reading Praise God. I've really missed it because when we were prepping for our move, I kind of stopped for a few weeks, to be honest. Like, it was just too busy. But David and I recently read The Hobbit together. Oh, that's Um, fun. We just finished it last week. And, you know, we both read it before but never together. So that was fantastic. 
um, highly recommend that you do with your friends or your spouse. Um, I am reading currently Whose Body by Dorothy Sayers, which oh. is a fun murder mystery and loving it. She is hilarious. She has a great sense of humor and there's a really like Grace and I have talked like in previous, previous episodes, like I think when we were doing Father Brown about how much we love murder mysteries. Um, but I prefer them to be lighthearted. Like I'm not trying to read something that's going to not let me sleep at night. Um, oh, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> and Dorothy's Sayers is just delightful so far. I'm about halfway through it. Anyway, um, that's great. And then I'm also reading a book called Jaber Crow um, by Wendell Berry. Cool. And that is for a book club I just joined here. Oh, and I'm about maybe four chapters into it now. And I really enjoy his writing style a lot. Um, it's a an American novel, um, and so far it's just been about him telling his life story, basically. And um, yeah, it's really good so far. So I've been enjoying that. And I think that's it. I think that's all I'm. I've been up to as cool. far as reading. What about you? So I'm. I've been transitioning to this new job, um, which is gonna. It's it's exciting because the last, you know, several years I've been teaching the same thing every year. So I haven't really been reading a lot of new stuff that has to do with my job. Um, yeah. but I'm, I have all these books on my bookshelf that I've been buying over the years and just not ever getting to. And so I'm excited because some of them directly relate to, you know, questions that people have, um, in the classes that I'm going to be teaching. And so I'm kind of collecting things to read or reread that I haven't, um, been able to yet. So, uh, so there's sort of a smattering of excerpts of things, various theological works, um, books about prayer, books about the Eucharist, um, just different things like that. And then, uh, I've been re-listening to Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop. Oh, it's so um, good. Which I love. Yeah. It's just, it's sort of, I guess, summary to me for some reason, maybe just because of the desert. Every description is so warm in that book. Yeah. I love it. So, um, so I'm rereading that and really enjoying that right now and fantastic. Just plodding through Jesus of Nazareth still (laughs) going very very, very slowly. I, yeah. A lesson for life. You can't rush through Jesus. Right. I know. It's like, and I want you to can take every so day with him. Yeah. I just want to like plow through it, but I just, I read a paragraph and then I'm like, dang, I have to think about this for like three weeks. <laughs> so. I love it. That's fantastic. And what a nice thing to look forward to, to have all of that reading that you mm. now can like intentionally plug into that you didn't have time for before. So yeah. good. And what's great about this new position is that I have time like during the work day to actually read things for the work that I'm doing. So it's not as if I have to do it. Cause they want you to be like, they want you to fill yourself up in order to fill up these students. Right. Which is amazing. Yeah. And everything, like I said, is directly related to the things that I'm teaching. So it's necessary. Um, But because I'm not teaching a high school schedule where I'm teaching every hour a class, you know, it's like I actually have office time where I can, organize that how I need to. So that's so awesome. I'm very grateful. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the chapter today is called the suicide of thought, as we said previously, hopefully you've read it. Um, but if you haven't, please welcome to the discussion and hopefully you'll still get something out of it. Um, I think you will. We're going to be talking about a lot of ideas today that, um, are 100% still relevant today in our society. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter that this book is over a hundred years old. We it's it's extremely uh, relevant to our lives today. So reading it, um, I really like. It's amazing. Like it's kind of like, wait, Chesterton, are you alive in twenty twenty one? I know it feels it's it feels like prophetic. Like, yeah, but he has a way of doing that, right? Yeah. Because he has a way of capturing truth and truth doesn't change even yeah, though culture I, I think do. a lot of the quote-unquote new ideas that we're experiencing in 2021 really aren't that new like I think a lot of them are coming from these roots that started you know back in the 17 1800s yeah. like, and a lot of the things that I guess we're still 
our culture is still preaching and and believing yeah. today is is rooted in that time period just before Chesterton. So I think totally we're dealing in some ways with the same stuff, just maybe yeah manifestations of it. So there's nothing new under the sun. Sin has <laughs> existed accurate. since the beginning of the world, and like we think we're progressive and like we've gotten past. It's just funny. Like, I think we said this last episode, it's been so long. So I'm sorry if we repeat <laughs> ourselves on anything, but it's like, we have not progressed past stupidity. It's all, it's all still going on. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I, um, I kind of wrote down my thoughts about what I thought the main idea of this chapter was about. So I'm going to just dive into that and I want to hear your thoughts on that as well, Grace. Absolutely. Um, no, I'd love that. So I think that the point that he's making um, is twofold. Um, that the modern system of thought that exists, A, is not better than older systems of thought um, or, you know, perhaps the wisdom of the ages, just the history of the world in general. Um, and also that modern thought, if it's incomplete, if it's unbalanced, it actually leads to insanity and self-destruction. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, what we're going to really dive into today. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, and I pulled this quote from this chapter, that modern modern thought without being grounded in truth and without being grounded in reason, um, not only has a touch of mania but suicidal mania Mm. it's like not only does this lead to destruction but we we cause the we bring the destruction upon ourselves Mm -hmm. yeah it's basically Um, like following these thoughts to their logical conclusions the logical conclusion is (laughs) self-destruction exactly Um, it, it destroys itself and that's why he named the chapter the suicide of thought um, these particular, he, he argues, I think in the chapter that these particular systems of thought, these particular modern isms, if you will, um, are self-destructive in and of themselves. Um, yeah. so he focuses on one end of the spectrum on knowledge and intellect. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum on will, like the emphasis on will and, um, you know, like the Nietzsche will is, is the thing. I don't know if that's making any sense, but um, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Kind of two categories of thought that are these two categories of um, systems of thought that end up destroying themselves. And one right. is more focused on the intellect and one is more focused on the will. Um, right. But either way, both of them on their own, he's, he argues aren't enough that they you need them together you need them working together in order for them to to be successful exactly and and i think in this chapter it gets super overwhelming like as you said (laughs) rereading sentences in this chapter is crucial but at the same time he's just saying in a bunch of different ways that like you can't separate i just sounded like such a californian i've been saying like a lot lately (laughs) you can't separate the virtues from each other you can't separate reason from faith you can't separate um the intellect from the will Mm -hmm. it 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 leads to a a complete lack of success Mm -hmm. so we're going to kind of talk about some of the ways that he breaks that down a little bit but i think that's good to remember that he's just saying we can't we can't divorce some of these things from each other and not have extreme extreme consequences so i think that in general and maybe this is i don't know this is true in my own life and my own way of thinking through things is there's this tendency that we have to want to oversimplify um i think we want to come up with a little pithy phrase or a little pithy philosophy that is going to sum up everything. Well, this is the truth or like, this is the way we should think, or this is the way we should act. And in summarizing, we always tend to lose something vital. And I think that goes along with what he's saying in this chapter, that it's like, if we over hyperemphasize one thing, then something else is going to fall by the wayside and the whole system falls out of whack. Yes. Um, and so I think that yeah, that's just, that's one of the main points. Um, there was a quote that I pulled 
from the very beginning of the chapter. Um, he said the modern world is not evil. In some ways, the modern world is far too good. It is full yes. of wild and wasted virtues. And then later he says the modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they are isolated from each other and are wandering alone. Um, yeah. So he's talking about how there's certain virtues, Christian virtues, that the mm -hmm. modern world has adopted in sort of a post-Christian outlook and yeah. in divorcing, you know, things like pity from truth, mm -hmm. um, we end up losing the reality of, of it all and it doesn't hang together and it ends up destroying yeah. it. Yeah. And we don't end up helping anybody else when right. we do separate these things. That was, mm -hmm. that was the first thing I wanted to talk about today was um, the virtues running wild. It, it sounds like such a crazy thing. Like how could a virtue ever be bad? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But if we separate the virtues and we, you know, we have charity, but we don't have truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, how can we, the, that doesn't work. It, mm -hmm. You can't separate God. Mm -hmm. God cannot be divided and these virtues come from God. And so if we try to divide them, we run into all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. um, on the first page of this chapter, he talks about um, uh, <laughs> one of his favorite favorite man of all time, Bernard Shaw. <laughs> and, uh, and he says he has a heroically large and generous heart, but not a heart in the right place. And this is so of the typical society of our time. And then it directly follows by that quote that Grace just gave. And, and he's talking about um, the fact that it's rather useless to, to have pity for someone, but to not tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and vice versa. It's, it is a tragedy to um, tell someone the truth but have no pity or love for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that in doing that, um, you know, people that do have convictions, uh, people who do believe in truth um, can often fall into that trap, I think, of mm -hmm. trying to talk about the truth without that pity. But I think what we don't realize is that love is the truth. So mm -hmm. if we're trying to tell the truth without love, it's not the full truth. Um, yes. There's yeah, something really well missing said. in the truth. Um, if there's no love. Yeah. That actually there is something missing and we don't grasp the whole truth the way we think. We yeah. Do. Um, yeah. And I think it, it, it works both ways. You know, we don't mm -hmm. really grasp what love is unless we understand that there is something objectively true. Um, mm -hmm. So if, if I'm trying to be loving, or trying to pity someone in a way that I'm loving them or I'm caring for what's best for them. I'm, it's like, how can I say that I want what's best for them if I don't know what it is that's best for them? You know, there's not mm. some objective reality or truth there. So, um, so yeah, the two have to be held together, just like everything, all the virtues, like you said, God can't be divided. I think that's something extremely important that all of us tend to forget a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's an excellent point. And I think that the camp that Christians fall into a lot is that camp of not having enough charity, mm. truth, 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 truth. Mm -hmm. And I think in the secular world, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just want you to be comfortable and happy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give you any of the truth. Mm. Or I, I don't even know what the truth is, perhaps. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've just seen that a lot. And in myself sometimes too, it's, um, and sometimes the loving thing is to say the difficult thing, mm -hmm. but then always to say to whomever you're dealing with, um, I think God is calling you to this, but I love you no matter what you decide. Yeah. Or I, I love you no matter what you do. And I'm going to continue being a support for you, I'm going to continue to be in your life. Because I feel like that truly in the Christian world, that is more of the camp that we fall into is like, well, if, <laughs> I don't know, we write people off so quickly. Yeah. If they're not going to do what they kn know they need to do, then yeah, I guess I'm not a part of this. <laughs> and it's like, 
I think it can go both ways, though. I think especially in our modern, you know, like the quote unquote cancel culture, you know, that we have that like anybody. Oh, absolutely. I didn't even I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah, Like whether you're Christian or not, like it's like maybe you're Christian and you want to write off somebody who's not living a Christian life. Um, Maybe you're you don't believe in Christianity and you want to write somebody that is living a Christian or write somebody off that is living a Christian life, you know. Yeah, that's Um, yeah, that's a good point. I think I think that that really brings to the forefront something that Chesterton says later in this chapter um, that any sort of conviction means that there is a claim on morality. Yes. Like if it's a rejection of other things. Right. And so, you know, people even today who will shout down morality and say like, oh, there isn't this objective morality. It's like, well, more often than not, they, they make claims on morality. They just aren't necessarily Christian claims. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them are incorrect, Um, just not truthful claims right yeah Yeah. nobody nobody really lives and I think Chesterton talked about this in an earlier chapter maybe no he he talks about it in this one as well that like skeptics aren't really skeptics right the people who say that they believe nothing right you can't really really true practically live a life only out of that conviction that right that you can philosophically claim it but your everyday life like doesn't actually it says otherwise that way. right exactly even in the most basic instance of like what do you decide to eat for breakfast <laughs> okay if you eat a piece of toast for breakfast or whatever and tea you have rejected eating blueberry pancakes for breakfast that day like right. i'm sorry you're making a decision <laughs> about something you can't say that you've never made a de- you know mm-hmm. so yeah he does discuss that in this chapter as well um yeah. And I think how skeptic skeptics run into that problem too. Right. There's in the in the beginning of the chapter, a little bit later, he talks about how he talks about modesty. Um, mm. and he talks about how modesty was something that needed to be when people were sort of overly convicted of their ideas in this in the sense that they or they were more, I guess, maybe overly convicted about themselves and like like I'm the best and I know it's right and like all of this kind of stuff. And it's kind of supposed to go against their self-centered nature he -hmm. says but today it's kind of been taken to the opposite extreme where people don't even trust their own ability to have convictions um they don't they don't trust that they can come to any sort of knowledge of the truth and when he started talking about that i was like wow that is exactly what i experienced um talking to a lot of my students um in the high school that some of them would come to a place where they were like, yeah, but we can't know it. Like we can't know anything. I mean, we can't know if anyone's right. We can't mm-hmm. know. And they were kind of stuck in this place of it's impossible for us to reason um, and have objective truth and have any sort of conviction about what yeah. is true. And, and speaking specifically about religion, they mm-hmm. were like, well, how can we know? I mean, we can't know at all like there's no way you know and it was very fascinating to me that they had no um i guess understanding of the reasonable nature of any religion you know not Mm -hmm. just christianity but the fact that people are making claims on reality that they're not just coming from nowhere that there's like some sort of reasoning behind them it's like they almost thought that that was non-existent you know yeah um they're growing up in a very unreasonable world yeah in their defense yeah yeah i yeah that's interesting that that part you were just discussing about humility mm-hmm. um he says that i wrote down this quote it struck me he says a man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about truth mm-hmm. and i think it's an excellent point that <laughs> we're on a, a journey uh, in our lives holiness right as christian people as well and i think honestly even outside of the christian faith like most people are on a journey to becoming a better person in whatever way shape or form that in their life and um as he said like we're supposed to be doubtful about ourselves because we have so much growth that needs to happen we have so much that we are like working on attaining and Mm achieving and but how can you know what you're trying to attain and achieve Mm -hmm. if you don't know a what the end goal is or b Mm -hmm. what the truth actually is Mm -hmm. and we're i mean we're incredibly blessed to have knowledge of the virtues and say we want to say goodbye to vice and we want to say 
hundred percent yes at some point in our life to all of these virtues like we want to embody these virtues that is a, a guide for us a very specific and helpful guide um mm-hmm. there has but, to be some standard if we're going to improve at all right there has to be something objective in order to move forward and he talks about that a lot um yes in terms of society as well. He's talking about progress. He's talking about change. Like as a society, we can talk about it personally, like you were saying with virtue and vice. Um, but without some sort of standard, you can't move forward or backwards. And we um, can't know if we've made improvement if there's exactly. no standard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he, he quotes something um, at some point, something about the grooves of change. Yeah. It was from Tennyson. He Mm -hmm. said, let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. Right. Besterton says he thought of change itself as an unchangeable groove. And so it is. Change is about the narrowest and hardest groove that a man can get into. So Mm -hmm. um, without some sort of objectivity, um, there's no such thing as change. There's no such Mm -hmm. thing as progress. Yeah. And which is funny because our society thinks that they're the most progressive that they've ever been. As I think I mentioned in the last episode, I know I did, the guy who said to me on the phone before I finished working, we've progressed past religion. Like, we don't need this anymore. It's like, okay, um, I'm not going to (laughs) break, it's not my job to break down that statement for you. But, you know, like, that's what our society thinks is that, like, we've, we've progressed past these archaic, ancient standards yeah. And it's like, as you said, if the standards continue to change, A, Christianity is the right standard. Like Jesus Christ established the truth and we can trust that and we can believe it and we can use it as our foundation. And um, and at the same time, it's like if the standard continues to change, we can't measure improvement. We can't measure progress. So. Yeah. You don't know if we've progressed past religion. Yeah. A good, well, a good question to ask then would be like, by what standard? Like, yeah. by what <laughs> yeah. standard have we pa- progressed past religion? Like, what is the standard that... I almost wanted to say yeah. like, oh, has has murder stopped in the world? Yeah. Has, uh, <laughs> oh, are there no people who hurt each other anymore? Like, is, I don't know. It just, it's, it's like, it sounded like he's like, we've attained intellectual perfection. And it's mm-hmm. like, clearly not, because this is still a very broken world. Yeah. And I think even just beyond, um, you know, like you're saying with murder and, and people hurting one another and stuff like that, it's like, there's something innate that we know that's wrong. And there's, that kind of gets into the, the ethical answers that Christianity mm-hmm. provides. But then on the other hand, there's the more, I guess, philosophical things of, or I don't know what the right word is, like existential things like, um, you know, life and death and Mm. eternity and, you know, like the meaning purpose, you know, like who we are, like that kind of stuff um, that I feel like more than ever, we, we talked about this a lot in the last chapter that we're confused and we're frustrated and it's very dark sometimes, you know, Um, we don't have these answers, you know, a lot of times. Yeah. the same people um, sometimes who claim to have progressed past religion um, end up having even less answers to those questions, I think, than do religious people. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple Sundays ago before we left San Diego, the deacon at our church gave this awesome homily. But like one of the things that he said in the homily was um, he said, he was bringing up a particular situation that was specific to our parish, but that I won't get into, but he said, is there a right or a wrong answer about this in the way that we're dealing with this? And he said, yes, there is a right answer. And it just struck me that like, we kind of can complicate things because we're so attached to sin, but there is a right answer. There is an objective truth about everything. And it's really dangerous to say that there's not Mm -hmm. and I I feel like this is like Chesterton talks about this like it leads to a sort of war Mm -hmm. amongst the virtues or uh, amidst the virtues however Mm -hmm. I don't know the proper way to say that is but because we can't um if we ignore the objective truth about something, then then as we said earlier, like we're dividing the truth and that you just can't do that. You can't take a little bit here, but not, not take it over here. 
um everything is connected in that way yeah um nothing can really be taken on its own right um just a final note i had about this this section on virtue and um kind of this first idea that he's talking about is that he's not saying that we have to be perfect mm-hmm. um even though scripture says be perfect as your <laughs> heavenly father is perfect but he's saying that we can't become complacent and be content with pity without truth or truth without pity as his his example that he's been using um we have to this has to be a continual assessment of ourselves and of our lives and we have to recognize when we don't have one of the virtues or when we struggle with it or are frankly doing really poorly in it and not be content to just not not have that virtue we have to continually be seeking it and i think that that is kind of one of the critiques that he offers to um in the end of the chapter he uses Nietzsche as a sort of like picture of this one end of the spectrum and Tolstoy as another. And he, one of the things that he argues is that their method of thought actually leads to inaction. Um, that it kind of leads to stagnance and there's like no progress and there's no growth and they don't do anything and they end their lives having not really done anything of value you know yes. I'm not saying he's not arguing that they've done literally nothing of value in their lives but i think there's there's something there he contrasts them with joan of arc <laughs> first of all and then yeah. contrasts them with christ and i in in both instances he kind of shows how they hold these things in tension yeah. um but in kind of overemphasizing one or the other um nietzsche and tolstoy end up in this kind of stalemate of their lives totally um and yeah, like back to the quote that you had mentioned earlier, um, we're meant to be doubtful of ourselves, but not doubtful of the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that can mean is, is not that, you know, I have this conviction and I'm doubtful about it, but that there is truth. I'm just doubting that I have perceived it totally 100% correctly yet. Yeah. You yes. Know? I yes. think that there's, there's always something and it's like, throughout our lives, we have glimpses of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully a person would throughout their life grow and their vision of that truth will come more mm-hmm. into focus. It's not as if, you know, at one point in my life, I have this entirety of belief. And then later in my life, I realize that that entire thing is wrong. And there's like right. nothing there that was true at all, but it's that the truth kind of comes more and more into focus over time. Yes. Um, and the things that were untrue are sort of burned away, um, yeah. but the truth remains. And so I don't know if that's making any sense, but I feel totally. um, but I think it's like what St. Paul talks about with you don't feed a baby, you feed a baby yeah. milk, right? And then, you know, as they, as a person grows, they can digest more. Um, and I think that I was just having a conversation with um, a somebody at that book club I joined this morning about how we have every day and every year of our lives these moments of clarity where we say, I don't know, we have, the, we, you know, you have a moment where you're like, I am sinful in this way and I never realized it before and I never saw it before and I didn't feel convicted about it before. And I didn't feel like I needed to change anything in this area before. But for whatever reason, like the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to this now and has revealed a little bit more of that truth to me. Mm. And my life has changed. And like these are moments that continue to happen over our entire lives. And like God doesn't just flood us from the first day of our birth with (laughs) complete knowledge of everything. I mean, even... When Christ was on earth, he he didn't fully reveal himself in one day. Yeah. To his, I mean, to his apostles, he got to know them. Mm-hmm. They got to know him over time, like in an, in a relationship. And, and he's even the same with us. Glory, like in the transfiguration and the resurrection, yes. like even in seeing his glory, they don't perceive it themselves perfectly. Um, even though yes. it's like right before their eyes. And so I think that's what it is, is that like if you take Christ 
there as the objective truth, which we believe that he is actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but if, if Christ is there right in front of our eyes as the objective truth, it's not him that needs to change or him that's not enough or him that's not completely true, but it's our eyes that need to be more and more open. And so we really are the thing that needs to change, um, over time in order to perceive that truth. So yeah, that whatever's objective doesn't change. Um, but we do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. Okay. Um, so another thing that he talks about is, uh, which I don't know if this is the next thing you wanted to discuss, so please bring up anything. Yeah. I'm I'll follow. Um, so, um, he talks about not divorcing, um, faith from reason. Mm. Um, and, uh, a quote that I pulled here was reason is itself a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. Um, And and this is where he starts diving into what we already mentioned a little bit earlier, that it's incorrect to say that our brains are just (laughs) randomly firing and that we can't ever trust what our brains are thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, We believe that we were created with an intellect and a will, Mm -hmm. right? And um it's a responsibility as a human being to use our intellect and our will in order to form ourselves and to make decisions about things and to believe especially about what we believe and don't believe mm-hmm. um but what were your thoughts on this section of of not separating reason from faith and yeah i mean do I you think, think he's correct <laughs> i think so i mean i think that it's it's interesting to say that reason is a matter of faith, um, you know, it's true that we do have to have a sort of faith that our thoughts have any bearing on reality, that our perception of the world around us is real at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of people, especially today, and even in Chesterton's time, because he kind of mentions it, um, people who would reject that there is any sort of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but his argument there is that that type of thought stops thought that again Mm -hmm. it like puts you in this sort of stagnation where you don't get anywhere it nails your boot to the floor is what I think he said it um you can't move forward or backwards or do anything at all um if you believe that there's no that your thoughts have no bearing on reality that like you maybe aren't even real you know I think in the last chapter he talked about you know, ending up in this dark cell where you don't even believe that your mother exists and you know all these different things and and it's kind of gets you into this dark cramped space this yeah so to speak um he said there's a thought that stops thought and that's the only thought that ought to be stopped (laughs) (laughs) the the thought that thought doesn't mean anything you know right um and so there is it's interesting i'm just kind of thinking out loud here that faith and reason both it's like they're they're real, but they can't be proved in, I guess, purely empirical way. Mm. Like neither of them can, but both of them can be argued for, I think. Yes. I I think that we can argue for for reason being real, you know, um, just as much as we can argue for faith being real. um, But the type of arguments that we give aren't empirical. Right. Um, Right. And so, which is unsatisfying to some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, if it's unsatisfying to you, um, to argue for, you know, something like God, Mm -hmm. um, based not on empiricism, then it also must be unsatisfying for you to argue for reason, meaning anything at all. Mm. Um, and if that's the case, then you end up again in that kind of stuck, you know, you're stopped. Well, yeah. You yeah. Um, because if nothing means anything, then, well, you know, yeah, the hell with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And he quotes Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. And he says, and now this modern society, their thoughts are, I am not, therefore I cannot think. Yeah. What a and depressing, yeah. <laughs> depressing reality, man. If that's your reality, I'm just looking outside too at this like beautiful, new yard we have outside of our house and like these amazing trees, amazing, just like green everywhere because Wisconsin is like the most lush 
mm. place I've ever lived. Um, but I, I believe that it's real. When I walk through my yard and I feel the grass under my feet and I can touch the trees in my yard and hear them and it's, it's just such a, it's a sadness to not believe that this could all be real. Yeah. And, and not even it, on as basic of a level as that, like not even on a philosophical level, just on a, is my brain really taking in the things that I think it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Um, this rolls into another idea um, to admire choice mm. um, is to refuse to decide. <laughs> um, and he talks about like um, this idea of like being pro-choice and I, I not using that as a, right, right. not using that in the this day and age sense of the word, but just like yeah. uh, being pro-choice, making choices, whatever. Um, is kind of a refusal to decide. And and I think this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about as well, like um, when you brought up Joan of Arc and um, Tolstoy and uh, who's the other? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Um, and I read something recently, which was just two sentences of wisdom from one of my friend's moms on um, Instagram, I think. <laughs> it basically was just saying, 20 minutes of doing something is better than 20 hours of thinking about doing something. <laughs> and it's like what Chesterton says. Yeah, yeah. It's worth doing. It's worth doing badly, right? Right, yeah. It's like, just jump in and do it. And um, he brings up this really important idea here that we have to decide what we believe. Mm-hmm. We have to. We can't just sit back and say, well, I can't make a decision about anything i can't know anything so no it's you have to decide what you believe so that you can actually do something Mm -hmm. because the belief should lead to action right yeah um i was curious about your thoughts on that yeah i mean i think the two of them have to be held together again because you know we don't believe that our you know as christians like we don't believe that our faith is all about doing it's also about being you know and it's also about thinking but but it's like when you only have doing without thought or you only have thought without doing, then it's mm-hmm. like you're missing something, you know, and yeah. it's not the whole thing together. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe you do think for a long. I mean, Chesterton himself is obviously like spending time thinking about these things. But Well, it's not like we're not supposed to think at all. But, right, right. You know, and so but he's thinking he's he's trying to live and you see this like in his actual life, like he's trying to live according to these thoughts that he's thinking. And, um, a lot of times as we were kind of saying earlier with some of these systems of thought or these philosophies, um, you spend a lot of time thinking about them, but you don't actually live by them. Mm. You know, practically speaking, you are living by some other philosophy, you know, whether you realize it or not. Um, And obviously none of us, especially, you know, as Christians, like we know that we're hypocrites. Like we know that they're not always perfectly living by what we claim to believe. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think that's the importance of like thought and action together that you're constantly examining your life and you're like, oh, yes, I living according to what I believe. And that's what I think is trying to say to do is that to like take seriously what our philosophy is. Yeah. Live by it, you know, Um, and if it doesn't make sense to live by it, then maybe there's something missing in our philosophy, you know, like something wrong. And maybe we're not convinced by it if we're not living it. Yeah. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, so, but, I don't know. Those yeah. are my thoughts on that. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. No, I I agree, and I think that um, it's it's really easy for me to think more than do, mm-hmm. um, like to think about how I want to be more virtuous in an area, but to maybe not necessarily make a plan <laughs> for like how I'm going to actually practice that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that idea really struck me that. Like he's saying, make make a choice because once you decide what you truly believe, yeah, it really is going to inform the actions that you take, or it should start mm-hmm. to. Um, okay. Um, he makes this really interesting claim that every 
act is an act of self-sacrifice. And um, he says, in order to choose anything, we must reject everything else. Um, So (laughs) once again, I I would love your thoughts on this, Miss Grace. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was really provocative because um, we don't think of every act as an act of self-sacrifice. We can think of of acts as selfish, you know. And I think that's true. Yeah. And I think he would argue that as well. But um, but I think what he's trying to get at is that yeah, that idea of choice that when you do choose something, when you do make a decision finally and make a mm-hmm. move. Um, you do actually reject a lot of things, everything else, in fact, and uh, including yourself in a way. Yeah. Um, because you're putting focus elsewhere. And so I'm trying to think of like the times that I've been, I guess, really selfish. I end up in this weird nothingness. <laughs> like mm. I end up in this stagnance and this like, I don't know, like if I refuse to choose because I'm afraid I'm going to make the wrong choice or like I don't choose something because I want to make sure that I choose the best thing, but I don't actually choose Mm. anything that I end up just with myself alone with nothing. I don't know. It ends up being nothing. Yeah. It just, except for me, like me alone. Um, And like we weren't, man was not made to be alone, you know, <laughs> like yeah, we yeah. were made to be in communion, uh, with other people, with God, you know, totally. and, um, I don't know, this is just me kind of like spitballing, but I, I think like to choose anything, to make a stand about anything draws you outside of yourself. It yes. recognizes that there are things outside of yourself to be chosen. Um, I think maybe that's what he means by that. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it, yeah, as as he uses the word self-sacrifice, I think it it makes us less selfish when we actually make choices about things when we when we choose something. Mm-hmm. He talks um, about art too in that way. I don't know if you wanted to Yeah, go ahead. Is there something you'd like to read about it? Yeah, there's a quote um He what says What page are you on? Oh, oh we have different 45. books, huh? Oh, I don't know. I have the Ignatius Press version. Okay, I have a different one. That's okay. Um, I think I have it here. It's right under that that quote that you just read. Mm-hmm. Like a, maybe a half. Oh yes, now. yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. He says anarchism adjures us to be bold, creative artists, and to care for no laws or limits. But it's impossible mm-hmm. to be an artist and not care for laws or limits. Art is limitation. The essence mm-hmm. of a picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If, in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. (laughs) The moment that you step into the world of facts, you step into a world of limits. You can see things from your alien or accidental laws, but not from the laws of their own nature. You may, if you like, free a tiger from from his bars, but do not free him from his stripes. Mm. Do not free a camel of the burden of his hump. You may be freeing him from being a camel. Do not go about as a demagogue encouraging triangles to break out of the prison of their three sides. If a triangle breaks out of its three sides, its life comes to a lamentable end. So talking about things with limits, things with with borders, like things have nature is what he's trying to argue. And um, nature is a limit. Um, if I am a human being, then that means I am not a fish, <laughs> you know, like, yes, I am a human being. That means that I'm not God. Um, yeah. And so there's there's limits to the things around us, like by their nature um, and nature is a limit. And so and that's a good thing. Yeah. And it, it allows us to make beautiful art. It allows us to recognize the beauty in things around us. Yeah. Um, but if nothing means anything, if everything's meaningless, if there's no limits, if there's no nature, um, then there's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to delight in. It's all yeah. just wash. Um, you know, well, and it, like everything can be anything then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's no meaning. It's just all pointless. It's all meaningless and nothingness. Um, yeah. It's all brown <laughs> like you yeah know, yeah mixing all the colors together like there's no and there's no thing I mean there's no yeah. there's no anything it's just you can't and you can't say that something is unique yeah if it could just be anything else mm-hmm. yeah and that's like about the chair 
like yeah. somebody arguing that, that yes. all chairs are different. And he's like, well, you can't say all chairs if they're all different. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He's something... like, this is a category of things. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if has... you take away all categories, it just evolves into nothingness. And like, I think in the last episode, we talked a little bit about art and we were talking about how um, the more you take limits away, the less it really is art. I mean, it's like, there's not really anything of interest at all. Yeah. Um, and the thing no is meaning. like the limits do not, as people sometimes think, stem creativity yeah. or originality. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not that, um, there's a lack of creativity or originality when there are limits in fact, the opposite, you're more free to create something original within the limits of the particular kind of art that you're creating. And yeah, we, I think we did mention that last time. Um, I like the quote that he has just before what you read, which I think I brought up in a previous episode, but it's still one of my faves. Um, <laughs> can you say faves in a GK Chesterton podcast? Yes. I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> Just as you, just as when you marry one woman, you give up all the others. So when you take one course of action, you give up all the other courses. And that just makes so much sense to me. Like, yeah. of course, I'm not going to be married to every man in the world. Yeah. I'm choosing one and I'm saying no to all the rest. And that sounds like, it sounds drastic when you just hear it in the philosophical, like, well, yeah. if you pick one thing, you're rejecting everything else. But then when yeah. you hear it in a practical example, like, you're like, oh, no. okay, <laughs> if I'm eating toast and eggs, I can't eat, uh, like, I'm going to be full and I can't also eat waffles and pancakes and cereal. Like, that's fine. I don't need to have everything at all times. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do, like, I have felt the paralysis of too much choice before oh. in my life. Like, feeling like there are too many choices is it is paralyzing sometimes. Sometimes a breakfast menu is paralyzing for me. Okay. <laughs> I know. I just went out to it's breakfast all about food. With, with everyone in my office the other morning and we went to this like classic diner that's on the campus of LSU and they have a huge menu and we were all just like, I want everything. I don't know what to order. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just, I, I think I, I talked to a, um, a guy who started this project uh, in Louisiana that helps prisoners who either were wrongfully accused or they, they were given a sentence that was um, far larger than than their crime warranted mm. or they had had, you know, kind of life conversions within prison and they were given a chance at parole. And um, anyways, they, they go what out into the work. world. Yeah. And they go out into the world, um, but they've been behind bars for like, you know, 20 years, 30 years, you know, things like that. And they have no concept of, of society. And in the prison, mm. they don't have a lot of choice. Like, you know, right. Toothbrush is your toothbrush and your toothpaste is your toothpaste. And it's what yeah, they give you what you have and, and they you tell you what you're going to do choice. all day. And you show up yeah. in the cafeteria to eat dinner and you don't have any choice of what you're given. You're just given something. There's no yeah. like, and they're so used to that for so many years, decades, even that then when they come out into the world, they can have sort of like nervous breakdowns walking into Walmart because there's so much choice that they're mm. like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. You yeah. Know? Um, and oh, there's this man. paralysis that they experience. So what they do in their program is they kind of teach them these things before they're released out into the world and they kind of talk through them and they go with wow. them their first trip to the grocery store and they go with them to buy their car and they go with them wow like all these different places and so anyways I just I was thinking about that and I was just thinking about in general like my own experience that's not that drastic but just mm. in having too many choices like we can tend not to act um yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think people it. are happier in general with fewer yeah. choices. I think so too. Yeah. It, well, think about like, if we didn't have the moral code that we do mm. and every day you had to decide, like personally, individually, you had to decide whether or not you thought murder was a good idea that day. <laughs> yeah. It's like some things we can just literally lift off of our mind and never yeah. think about again, because yeah. we already know the truth about it. 
that is so freeing mm -hmm. to not have to make a decision about that. You it's don't like, have to discern everything. They talk about even in yeah. Christian circles, like the paralysis of discernment, where like yes. constantly discerning everything and never actually making a choice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Too much discernment is not a good thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about is his claim um, that, well, we've kind of kind of already addressed this. I wrote here, um, why is it necessary in order for us to be seen, um, for us to believe that there is an objective truth? But I, I think we've kind of covered that. Mm. Um, maybe we can just talk briefly about the Joan of Arc, Nietzsche, yeah. Tolstoy, um, triangle here at the end yeah no I, I loved that i think more than anything else in the chapter i thought that yeah. was really helpful and um, she's like one of my favorite ladies of all time by the way whether or not you're um whether or not you're catholic and you like follow any of the catholic saints um she was just such a badass <laughs> and this lady got stuff done she was fearless her trust in god was just amazing um I really recommend um, – I've read a few things about her. I don't know if I have particularly a biography or anything to recommend, but she's so Didn't cool. did Chesterton himself write a um, review of Mark Twain's Joan of Arc? Or was that – am I misremembering that? I don't know. No, I. you're probably not, but I, I'm not familiar with it. I don't know. I know that we'll Mark Twain's um, Joan of Arc is, is one of the most famous biographies of her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've heard people say that he... I didn't it's know Chesterton funny. wrote about it. I feel like he had. I Because it's... I wouldn't be surprised because he, he has... That Mark Twain like praises all of her virtues in contrast to the church of her time. Like, so mm -hmm. he's trying to, to rail against the church of her time, but appreciate uh, her Joan. church in general, but he appreciates her and all her virtues. And I thought it was Chesterton that argues like she is the church of that time that like her living yes. out those virtues, like is what the church is. And the people in the church who were not living out those virtues were not really true representatives of the church like as uh, um anyway i don't know i feel like i heard that from chesterton but i mean i think i think you're probably right um anyways i i want to just kind of talk about let's see so so nietzsche is the one who believes that the will is the thing so it's not about what i think it's about what i will it's about yeah. what i choose it's about what i do that i should just do that I should just do what I want, like, just go for it. Um, and mm. he's about this sort of choice and this almost like violence and this like, do yeah. um, and then he talks about Tolstoy as like any sort of choice, almost, uh, does he say like a Buddhist uh, instinct? Yeah. Yeah, he that does. The will is frozen that like basically any choice we make is not good, that everything's evil. Um, and so I guess like for him, it's like the rejection of will. It's like thinking about things maybe. Um, yeah. it. He talks about like Tolstoy admiring things, uh, yes. um, okay, but yeah. like without ever really um, taking pleasure in them, uh -huh. like in actuality, because he's like he's that one at a distance thinking for 20 hours about something but never actually doing something for 20 minutes uh -huh. and then but he also yeah argues that nietzsche does the same thing where he's such yeah. a champion of the will in in his own intellectual thought that he doesn't actually do anything about it and so they, they both stop themselves yeah he doesn't live <laughs> yeah. by anything but but he talks about um joan in contrast to that let's see he says they were, he basically says they are both stuck at this crossroads. Um, but Joan yeah. of Arc was not stuck at the crossroads either by rejecting all paths like Tolstoy or by accepting them all like Nietzsche. She chose a path and went down it like a thunderbolt. Yet Joan, when I came to think of her, had in all her, 
had in her all that was true, either in Tolstoy or Nietzsche, all that was even tolerable in either of them. And I thought that was really, really cool because it was like, not only has she chosen a completely different path, not only has she done a completely different thing than both of the two of them have done, she also has done everything that they have talked about that actually was true and good. Mm. Mm. Um, that neither of them have done she lived it with their lives yeah 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 it said um she did not praise fighting but fought yes we know that she was not afraid of an army while Nietzsche for all we know was afraid of a cow <laughs> <laughs> Tolstoy only praised the peasant she was the peasant yes. Nietzsche only praised the warrior she was the warrior she beat them both at their own antagonistic ideals she was more gentle than the one more violent than the other Yet she was a perfectly practical person who did something while they are wild speculators who do nothing. Yeah. And, and she is the epitome of selflessness mm. in making her decisions and, and acting, mm. like truly deciding to believe something and acting on it. Yeah. And they're the epitome of selfishness because they got so stuck in themselves and their ideas that they had that they didn't actually end up living, as you said, like any of those good aspects of what they did believe because yeah. both of them had asked, they had small parts of the truth, mm -hmm. right? Like we, I'm not here to say that either of them was a hundred percent wrong about oh, their no, definitely ideas yeah. about life, but they, divorced these things like they they did what chesterton has been saying this whole chapter like mm -hmm. they separated things out in such a way that they they couldn't actually have success with their ideas yeah i mean i think in a way he's accusing him of hypocrisy like i think he's saying like look like you you actually had a lot of really great ideas but you didn't live by any of them yeah <laughs> yeah know? um and so i yeah that's i don't know i just i thought that that was really cool to see her as a contrast um, to the two of them. But then he goes into talking about Christ um, hmm. and how people try to divorce these two sides of Christ as well. Um, he talks about two people who try to kind of pull apart or two types of people that kind of try to pull apart Christ. Like either he's too altruistic or he's too egoistic. Um, hmm. and, and it can't be that he is both like larger than life um and super humble you yes know? um they can't see the paradox they can't see those two things being held together um and again this is his whole thing right is that christianity is this like paradox this paradoxical answer to these questions that we're asking i think he in the very first chapter he talks about that um yeah. and he sees sees christ as as answering all of those questions that we have holding everything in tension um I just want to read the very last. Do it. I was just going to suggest it's it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, he says, they have torn the soul of Christ into silly strips labeled egoism and altruism. And they are equally puzzled by his insane magnificence and his insane meekness. They have parted his garments among them. And for his vesture, they have cast lots. Though the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. Boom. I was like, dang. You're like, yes, writer. sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Bring right into the scripture. And it's so, it really is like the meaning of that scripture that um, the priestly garment that is all held together without seam. Yes. Yeah. His insane magnificence and meekness. Yeah. I, that's a beautiful way to end. Yeah. Ending on Christ as we should. Amen. So, I hope that was helpful for all of you listening um, to kind of break that down a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And um, it yeah, as, for me to talk about it. <laughs> me too. I, as we are drawn outside of ourselves, I, I often find that um, yeah. if I'm struggling to think about something, it's always helpful to talk to a friend about it. Um, we're going to be kind of transitioning um the ethics of elfland the next chapter is different it as you'll see um and so at the beginning of the next episode we'll kind of recap what we've read so far and then we'll dive in um and yeah like we said we're really looking forward to discussing the rest of this book with you and we're just going to do our best to 
to get it out to you as we can. Um, I think in the next uh, chapter, Chesterton kind of transitions and he, he kind of talks about uh, in this chapter, he said, here I end, thank God, the first and dullest <laughs> business of this book, the rough review of recent thought. So he's he's going to be kind of shifting from his arguments with modern thought and modern uh, systems of thought and transitioning towards like, what does he actually believe? Like yes. what has led him to belief in Christianity? Like in, in Orthodox Christianity, like what, what is it that he actually believes? Like, what is the substance? And yeah. so, um, so I think it's going to be, uh, if, if the last couple of chapters have seemed a little, I don't know, difficult or boring or something to a you. A little dry. Take yeah. heart because I think that as it goes, it goes on, up from here, a little bit more interesting, um, yeah. by his own admission. So <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we, um, yeah, before we duck out, um, please pray for me and David as we become parents, hopefully in the Yay. next week or two. Um, and um, yeah, I, we're just really grateful for those of you who are still listening and joining us on this journey. Um, we will try to record again soon and get something out to you soon. Um, Grace, do you have anything that you're grateful for before we duck out? I'm just so grateful for this new job <laughs> mm. I'm just so grateful for, for the people that I work with and for the f sort of flexibility and I don't know, just personal nature of the job and like all the people that I'm meeting and getting to talk to. And it just feels so great. So that's awesome thing, but very grateful. I am grateful for our new home. Um, we're feeling very peaceful and settled here. And I'm also grateful. My, my grandpa passed away. Um, oh, that's right. About, so sorry to hear that. yeah, thanks. A week after we left San Diego. Um, but it was a joyful and peaceful event as it could be as much as it could be. And, um, <laughs> I had time to spend with him and time to say goodbye and time to tell him I loved him. And, um, that was, I didn't realize how much I needed that. So I'm really grateful for that. And honestly, he was so peaceful before he died that like, mm. I know he's with the Lord and I am grateful to have another intercessor in heaven who's helping me. So, awesome. um, yeah, missing him, but very grateful for all of that and just like how smooth everything has gone in the family and my grandma's okay and all of good. that. So anyway, um, very good. beautiful stuff. Um, oh, so, I'm also grateful that we're in the same, the same time zone now. Yeah. <laughs> heck yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, it's so much better. Poor Grace is always dealing with me being oh a couple gosh, hours no, behind. Me too. Me too. So anyway, yeah, that is fantastic. We're in the same time zone now, which is so nice for scheduling. Um, if you want to send us a message, we're on Instagram at Pints with Chesterton. Uh, our website's pintswithchesterton.com. Our email address is pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. I check it and I'm happy to respond to you if you send us a message, uh, any of those places. Um, Till next time. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>